that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Hey, good evening. Good evening. It's good to be with you guys. As always, 7 o'clock service. A lot of fun. My name is Ricardo. If you guys are new, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, One thing you need to know about Redemption Church, we're one church and we meet at multiple locations. Any other questions you have regarding Redemption Church, you could just take the information card that's in the seat in front of you, fill that out, and um, any questions you have, you could just drop it off in the offering boxes, which are located in the back by the doors, and we'd love to get back to you to answer those questions. Um, A couple things I want to place before you guys. Last week, we had a clothing drive, and as a church, we did an awesome job. Uh, The the gal who who raised it up, the the gal who organized it, emailed me, and um, then I called her back, talked to her, and she said that... We brought in, as a church, more clothes for the homeless people in Tempe than they could have ever imagined. And they were clothes that people needed. Um, She said sometimes when we do clothing drives, people just give all the clothes that they don't want and clothes that nobody wants to wear, even homeless people. And she said, we didn't do that. So good job. I want to encourage you guys. Second thing I wanted to place before you is last week, um, this Wednesday, this past Wednesday, we had our first uh, Tempe campus art gallery, and it was a blast. For those of you guys who were there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, We got a chance to see the art of many artists within our own church, Um, just singing, some poetry, some painting, some pictures. It was amazing. When you walked in on on the way in, you would have seen a picture with two hands and then two feet. If you didn't see it, check it out in the lobby on your way out. That picture was made by Autumn, who's one of the gals here in our, in our congregation, and we're going to give that picture to Maggie's place. Now, the significance of that is when the picture came in on Wednesday night, it was green and blue, and, and, and I thought it was black and white. The guy's correcting me. I'm colorblind, clearly. So it was green and blue, and she gave everyone an opportunity to contribute to it. And so if you see it now, it's really colorful. So young kids, adults, people came and just, they got to contribute to it. Now, the significance of that is that That is a physical representation of what we'll all be able to do next week, tangibly and financially, that we'll all be able to contribute to Maggie's Place. If you weren't here last week, Maggie's Place is a place that for our Advent giving this uh, this year that we're going to raise $30,000 or more to be able to give to Maggie's Place. And so I wanted to remind you, that's next Sunday, December 18th, we'll have a special offering above and beyond our tithe and offerings to give to Maggie's Place. If you're here and you know you're going to be leaving or you're going to be out of town next week, you can contribute to Maggie's Place tonight by just filling out a check and then the memo, just put Maggie's Place and make the check out to Redemption Church. All the proceeds, all the money will go to Maggie's Place. Lastly, last announcement I have is Christmas Eve. We're having two services on Christmas Eve. It'll be 4 p.m. and 11 p.m. So it's 4 p.m., 11 p.m. That's all I have for our time of announcements. Listen, we're going to get into our text. We're, we're going to continue our series on 1 Thessalonians. Um, if you're new, this is what we do. We preach through books of the Bible. And so if you have a Bible, take it out and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Keep it raised real high, and the guys will be able to get you a Bible. Um, get the Bible in your hand, and meet me at chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. And as you turn in there, just let you know, we are looking at verse 13 through 18 and verse 5, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So it's 17 verses, which is a lot. 
Um, we are not going to be able to touch on every single thing in these verses. Um, we will be able to look at what is Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter, what are his emphasis to this church? What are the point that he's trying to drive? And so just, just to let you know, the first section, Paul is comforting a church and encouraging a church in death. And so it, essentially what he's doing is he's taking this teaching of the second coming of Jesus, the advent, and he's encouraging this church in death. The second section, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul has taken the same teaching of the second coming of Jesus, and he's encouraging Christians in life. So one, he's encouraging them in death, and the other one, he's encouraging them in life, and that's what we'll be tonight. Before we jump into the text, would you please bow your heads and pray with me as we ask God for the Holy Spirit to illuminate his text for us tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you, and we praise your name. God, we ask more than anything tonight as we look at the teaching of the Advent, the second coming of your son, Jesus, that you would give us encouragement, you would give us comfort the same way that you would encourage the church in Thessalonica. God, we pray for an outpouring of your spirit to illuminate the word that we may see most clearly your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would come my heart, Lord, and remove me that we may see the cross, the resurrection, and glorify your son, the reason of which we were made. God, I pray that you would take our hearts and our minds and our intellect and that you would engage him with yours. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. In your name, amen. There's a book called Questions for My Father. Really good book. And in the book, the author begins to ask questions that he wished he would have asked his father when his father was still living. Questions like, what about me would you change? Um, what are the things in your life that you regret? And the questions of, where do people go when they die? Which I think is a pretty significant question. There's a 100% chance that when you're born, you will die. That's what we know for sure. Um, there's a 100% chance that when we're born, at some point, we're going to die. We don't know when, but we're going to die. And everyone in this room has experienced the loss of someone that's close to you in death. In fact, this could be a really hard time for some of you during the time of Christmas because of there's people maybe who were with you a year ago or two years ago that will not be with you this Christmas. And so there's a sense of sadness there. When we begin to ask questions about that, of what happens when people die, those are legitimate questions that we ought to ask. The first time I asked that question was about 15 years ago. The closest person to me that had ever died was my grandmother. Um, I love my grandma. She was my, my grandmama, right? We were close. I was close with her. Um, people used to say I looked like her and she looked like me, which was sometimes weird, but I got it. And she had big cheeks and I would grab her cheeks and she would pull my face close to her face. She was, she was just an awesome woman. And if you know anything about African-American culture, the grandma is like the pillar. Like she's it. She cooks the best. She cleans the best. And she was my biggest fan. And I was her favorite grandson. And my brother and sister used to let me know that all the time. It was clear. After she died, we could be honest. Like, remember you got this gift? Like, you know, my brother and sister would get like a Tonka truck, and I would get like a truck, right? And <laughs> it was obvious, right? I loved her. When my grandmother died, I remember the day, I remember the time, I remember where she was at Kaiser Permanente Hospital on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, California. And I remember it rocked me as a 14-year-old. It rocked me. I remember being at the funeral, looking at her in the casket and thinking, that's not my grandmother and asking the question of my mom in tears, will I ever see her again? Will, will I ever be able to see this woman again? And, and, and 
You know, you don't get over things like that. You ask questions and more questions like, was she there when I graduated from high school? Was she there when I graduated from college? Was she there when I got married? Does she see all these things? How, what, what's going on? But, but ultimately, what I want most, and what I wanted most was, I want to see this lady again. I want her to see that I grew up and I became a Christian. The thing that she used to talk to me all about, I, became, I, want, I want to see that. Some of us are like that with people in our lives. We ask, will we see these people again? That's the same question that this church in Thessalonica was asking. They had been taught about the gospel. Paul had started this church by planting the gospel, and it came in the power of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit. They knew about Jesus, and they knew about Jesus' coming. They knew that there was a second coming of Jesus in which he would redeem people, but what they did not know or they were uncertain or unclear was that the people who died, will they see Jesus? And when we see them again, Paul picks up in verses 13 to 18, 18 to be able to encourage them um, in, in their mourning. Verse 13 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Verse 13 kind of sets it out that Paul had taught them many things, but there was one thing, at least one thing that we know, that Paul had not communicated, at least clearly, and that, what, what, that question was, what happened to Christians when they died? And so Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who fall asleep. Now, the language here, in this, in this section of this passage, when Paul uses fall asleep, he, he's, it's a euphemism. He's talking about those who have died. And I believe that he uses the language fall asleep to communicate that death is not final. And so he says, as Christians who have lost other Christians, you should not grieve as others do without hope. Now, when he says without hope, he's saying the normal understanding of life after death for, for the people in the Greek culture here was that you just died and that was it. And, and, and maybe there was an afterlife, but there was no certainty. So hope was, was not true hope. What Paul wants to give them is certainty of the, his, the historicity of Jesus Christ, the empirical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus to say you can have a firm, secure hope. Another thing I want to just point out here is when it says that you do not grieve, Paul is not saying that you shouldn't grieve. He's saying that you shouldn't grieve in the way as if there's no life after death. He's, saying, he's, saying that, he's not saying that you can't cry or you can't weep. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus himself cried twice. One of the times that Jesus cried that we see in the Gospels is he cried when he looked at the city and the city would not believe in him. Ultimately, people who did not believe in Jesus and ultimately who would not come to know him, he wept. And the second time that he wept, that when he was at the funeral or at the gravesite of his good friend Lazarus, and it says that he wept. And so by no means does the Bible ever teach that we shouldn't grieve. For centuries, Christians have taken, taken this text and said that we should be somewhat stoic, somewhat, oh, if people die, who cares? It doesn't matter. God's going to come back. And that's not it. Because many of us know exactly, sometimes it's uncontrollable. That when you think about someone you've lost, when you think about someone you love, you can't help but be able to mourn. You can't help but have a sense of sorrow because there's a loss. You suffered loss. And Paul is saying, I want to be able to encourage you. I want to be able to comfort you in that. And he goes forward in the next several verses. Verse 14, he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now what Paul does in verse 14 is, he starts off with a confession or a creed. He says, we believe in Jesus. 
And, and, and he's saying, we believe in Jesus, and we believe that Jesus came, Jesus died, and that Jesus was raised. They would have been in agreement with that. And he points ultimately to Christ and says, in the same way that Jesus was raised, now God, the Father, with Jesus or through Jesus, will also raise the dead. So his first concern is talking about the dead in verse 14. He says, God will raise them. That's our faith. That's what we believe. In verse 15, he goes forward to say that, for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so what Paul is trying to communicate here, he's saying God has a plan to raise up the dead, and he's also got a plan for those who are living at the second coming. And so the context here is a funeral. The context here is people asking questions in their mourning. And what Paul begins to answer is to give them exactly what they're asking. The dead will raise people who are alive will also see Jesus, the very thing that they wanted. And when it says that they will not proceed, what was the thought was that if Christians had died because they had a bad understanding, or at least not a, not a clear understanding of eschatology, which is the study of end times, they thought that since Jesus hadn't come, and these people who had believed in Jesus had died, that they wouldn't see Jesus. This is convicting, because most of their mourning wasn't just, I'm not going to see my friends anymore. I'm not going to see my parents anymore. It was, they missed out on Jesus. There, there was a, a deep concern that they were worried that these people were not going to be able to see Jesus, the very hope that they had been promised. The, the very promise of the gospel is that they would be with Jesus. And that concerned them deeply to the point that they were mourning. And they wanted to know. And so the encouragement came to them. Paul's saying, God's got a plan for this. God's got a plan. You see, we, we know something of the Bible to be true, that when people who are believers in this life, believers in Jesus Christ, die, they fall straight into the Lord. Um, Paul elsewhere says in Corinthians that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They didn't know that. But yet their major concern was not that they died, which was, was sad, but that they wanted to know Jesus, and they wanted to know would they be able to see Jesus. And then Paul goes on to verse 16 and 17. 16, he says, For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here's a picture here. Paul uses some Old Testament language here by using the language of a trumpet. The trumpet communicated the presence of God. It communicated fanfare, that there would be an excitement. And so Paul takes these Christians who are mourning, who want to see Jesus and want to see the people that they lost, and he says, you will see him. You will see Jesus. They, he will return. God will return. There'll be trumpets. There'll be a loud noise to awake the dead, that we will rise together, and we will see a literal return of Jesus Christ. That is meant to bring excitement. That was meant to bring joy and encouragement. And Paul says, you'll see it. You will see it. And he goes first and he goes further in 17 and says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. Now, verse 17. Verse 17, 1 Thessalonians, is, uh, chapter 4, is probably one of the most controversial verses. Um, it's a verse that has just elicited much speculation, writing, books, terrible movies. There's been, there's been all types of things that are written on this text. Now, I just want to teach you something real quick. When you come to the scripture, there's a way in which you study the scripture, all right? And so what you have to do first is you have to ask the authorial intent, meaning what did the author of the Bible, of this particular letter, meant to say to his original audience? So what did it mean to them? And then we take, then what does it mean for us? 
We can't just say, what does it mean for us now before we understand what it meant to its original audience? This is healthy. And the reason why this is healthy is Paul's point here is not to communicate maybe some things that we've been taught. The primary point here, again, the context, it's after a funeral. People are sad. They want to know, will our friends see Jesus and will we see our friends? That's the question that they're asking. And that's the answer that Paul is trying to give them. So let me explain. 17. It says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together to meet them in the clouds with the Lord in the air. Now, Here's the picture. If you are not a Christian right now, this is where you completely check out, and I get it. We get really weird. And so Jesus says, right here, Paul says that the dead will rise, and those of us who are alive will rise when Jesus comes, and we'll meet in the air in a cloud. That's different, right? (laughs) But that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. What are we going to be doing in that cloud? I have no idea. Dancing, singing, I have no idea. Here's what Paul's trying to communicate, though. We will be with Jesus, and we will be with those who believed in Jesus. That's what matters. So, so, so often, people speculate, and they say, well, that means we're going to go straight to heaven, or we're going to come straight down to the earth, and we're going to have this rain or this rain. The rest of the Bible speaks to things like this. This text in particular, Paul's main concern is not about our geographical location when Jesus returns. He leaves us in the clouds in this text. Because for Paul, the main thing was, as he drives it home in verse 17, is that we will always be with the Lord. Jesus was the main thing. This is the same Paul who said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The same, the same person who said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life that I live now, I live in confidence or in faith of the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. That, that what mattered to these people is that the thing that drew them together is a thing that they will have forever. And in first and second Thessalonians, or excuse me, first and second chapter that we read, what we saw was the gospel did something. It created something that was completely unique in this city. In the city of Thessalonica, you had an urban church. You had poor people. You had young people. You had rich people. You had Jewish people. You had Gentiles people who were coming together mainly for the gospel, who were coming together mainly because of Jesus, just like you and I. There are people in this room that you knew, you know, you would not be friends with the person next to you if it wasn't for Jesus. You know it. You look at him and you go, you're different than me, you're dressed different than me, I don't like your jeans, they're too baggy, they're too skinny, you're too tall, you're too short, your music's terrible, whatever, whatever it may be, but we're together because of one thing, it's because of Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we would not be friends. Um, some of you guys, apart from Jesus, you wouldn't even be married. But what draws you together ultimately is your mutual concern and love for the nature and the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that has been separated from this church. That's been torn apart. And so Paul, to encourage them, says, what? drew you together. Your mutual love for God and what he has done for you and your love for each other will be with God forever. That's the point of verse 17. Amen? Paul is not talking about us getting caught up. He's not talking about us being left behind. he's, he's, He's talking about us being with Jesus. And this was supposed to be an encouragement. You see, the, the, the Bible was not meant. Is there questions that we have from this? Of course. But the Bible was not written to gratify our curiosity. The Bible was written and intended to give us a way and a means in which we ought to live in response to Jesus as Christians. And so Paul brings it home in verse 18. He says, therefore, meaning everything that he has just said, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Meaning this was meant to to encourage. So this is something that should be read at funerals. It's something that we should comfort people with. 
But by no means is this to trivialize the pain, the loss, the hurt, and the sadness that we go through. We, we would be fools if we went to suffering people who had lost people that they loved and just said, who cares? Get over it. Jesus is coming back. We'd be fools to say, there's a couple months that you have to have in grieving and you have to get over it. Absolutely not. It's different for different people. Some of you guys, it's taking a long time for you to get over the loss of people that you've loved. And that's okay. Paul is trying to give a bit of encouragement to say, even though you hurt in this life, it will be completely realized. It will be, it will be made right. It will be made new when Jesus returns. That's the hope that God, that God gives us in this text. Amen? Paul transitions to, to now not just encourage them in death, but now encouraging, encouraging these Christians how they should live in light of eternity. Chapter 5 starts. Verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have any, anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware of the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon pregnant women, and they will not escape. Now, Paul, Paul does something here. He says, you have no need for me to tell you this, just like last week when he talked about love. They were already loving because they had been taught by God. Paul says, you have no need for me to tell you this. I've already told you this once. Any of you guys who are parents here, you know that he's speaking in parental language, meaning he's telling them something again and again and again because it's important. Those of you guys who are, the four of you guys who are parents here that know that when you talk to your kids, you need to tell your kids over and over and over again. When you talk to your roommates, you need to tell your roommates the same things over and over and over again. If it's worth saying once, it's worth, if it's worth saying, it's worth saying all the time. So Paul goes on to say, this is what I told you, what you would know. Good discipleship always carries the idea of truth, even when it's not fun. And the truth that Paul communicates here is the day of the Lord. For you yourselves, verse 2, are fully aware of the day of the Lord. The, the day of the Lord is, is, is a loaded term. And again, Paul points back to the Old Testament. And even when the word was used in the Old Testament, it was used with such ambiguity in the sense that some people in the Old Testament used it as a time and they talked about it in which the Messiah would come and the first advent that the Messiah would come and he would restore all the good fortunes of Israel. And then you read passages and, and, and texts like Amos where it talks about that their people will be living in prosperity and they'll be looking for peace and yet destruction, judgment, and wrath will come. That's what Paul's talking about. When Paul says, we taught you about the day of the Lord, when Paul communicates that we spoke to you about this, he's saying, we didn't just talk about a God who was loving, a God who was holy, a God who was caring, a God who was gracious and forgiving. We talked about a God who hates sin, who hates evil, and he will execute justice, he will bring judgment, and he will bring wrath. Meaning, Jesus first came as a lamb, to be slaughtered for the sins of all who would believe. The second coming of Jesus, he will come as a lion, and he will come as a judge, and he will come to eradicate sin and evil. That, that, and, and the scary thing about it is, every single one of us in this room are sinners. Paul says, we talked to you about that. This was a point of importance so that Paul reiterated it and said it again. And he uses two pictures here. He says it will come when no one knows it. And he uses the picture of a woman and pains of labor and a thief in the night. Um, and so 
Those are good pictures, especially if you've been around people in labor. Um, I, I said jokingly earlier that the guys who have been married to women who have had babies, you know what that means. And the women looked at me like, are you kidding me? Are you, are you kidding me? I, I went through all that. Listen, I'm not trying to trivialize what you do, but I know what it's like to be a guy. And it's way harder. Just joking. Just joking. Just joking. Just joking. I, I, I joked around in saying that the, the suddenness that it communicates is, when my wife said she was in labor, I said, are you sure? Because it's 3 o'clock in the morning. She goes, no, I'm in labor. I knew the suddenness of it when her nails start digging in my hand and squeezing me harder than anyone ever squeezed. And I said, well, there's white meat and I'm bleeding. I think you're in labor. I think we need to go to the hospital. But, but it, it, there's a suddenness there. And the other, the other picture that he gives us is a thief in the night. And, and if any of you guys have ever been robbed, it's the worst feeling in the world. You know, it just, it feels like you got robbed, because you did, right? And three times I've been robbed, three times, all in the city of Tempe, God's city, right? Can't believe that happened. The, the time that affected me the, 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 the most was, we, it was my senior year, we played our last game at ASU, and so it had to be someone who knew us, um, and we got robbed in the middle of the day, like the sun was still up. We came home, the windows were broken, there was a TV sitting in the driveway. I guess they couldn't fit that in their truck or whatever. And they stole things. Here's the thing, we were in college. Most of you guys are in college, you're broke. I was like, what are you, why did you rob us? They stole pictures of like me and my nephews. I'm like, heartless son of a guns, right? <laughs> you, 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 if you knew that the thief was coming, right? That'd be a dumb thief. Just a dumb thief. Paul, Paul, Paul's communicating suddenness. You don't know. You don't know when the day of the Lord will come. You don't know when he will execute justice. You don't know when wrath will come. You have no idea. Now, I say that not by any means to scare you. Not by any means even to warn you because I don't think that's Paul's text. Some of us grew up in churches where we use that and go, it's the wrath of God is coming upon you. Believe in Jesus. And that, that's never God's motivation. God's motivation for you to believe in him is never out of fear. He doesn't try to scare you in the salvation. And I say this somewhat personally because there was a couple times where I raised my hands in church to accept Jesus that I really didn't accept Jesus. They put on a movie. I watched the movie. I saw water turning to blood. I said, uh-uh. Sign me up for whatever, whatever, right? Just not that. And Paul, Paul's not trying to scare people. God's not trying to scare people. In fact, Paul is communicating a sense of being unprepared. Yet, what he does next is he comforts and he encourages in verse 4. He says, but, which is the transition here. So the but, in compare and contrast, there's a contrast here. He says, but you, those in Jesus, you were not in darkness, brothers, that the day should surprise you like a thief. Meaning you're not in darkness, and darkness just communicates that you are not living in such a way that the thief will come to surprise you, that you will not be surprised by this that it won't be a bad thing when God comes. It's not something that he's going to come and you're going to be afraid. This, will, this should bring comfort. And the reason why that you would be prepared is not because you come to church faithfully or because you, you give of tithes or you give the Maggie's place or you're a good person. That has nothing to do with you being prepared. What prepares you ultimately is what God has done on your behalf. That's why Paul says he knows without a, without a doubt that you will be prepared in Christ because he goes on in verse 5. You are children of light, children of the day. Paul's communicating that what makes you prepared for that day, 
The reason why Christians don't have to be afraid and why God is not trying to fear us into believing him is that God has done something in our status. God has done something in our position. He's taking all of us who by, by nature, by choice, have been sinners, children of wrath, but now in faith in Christ Jesus, he's delivered us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, of which now we are now sons and daughters of the king. Uh, Paul tells it elsewhere that he gives us his spirit that testifies with our spirit that we are children. And it cries, and in an experiential cry, Abba, Father. So the, what, what makes us comfortable, what makes us have comfort and know that we're prepared is not what we do, but it's completely, fully in what God has done in Jesus. That's good news. That's really good news. Because there's nothing that you're doing now, there's nothing that you will do later if you have faith in Jesus that ever chases, chases that away. It never changes it. God's a good dad. He's a good father. He's not looking at you, waiting on you to make a mistake so he can put you back in this department. He says, no, you're a children of That's not going to change. Paul's encouragement there is because you know that you're a child, now live like it. There's certain characteristics of families. You get families on your street. Oh, that's a such and such family. They never mow their grass. Oh, that's a such and such family. They get all A's. They're good people. Oh, there's a such and such family. Right? There's certain characteristics of certain families, and God is saying, because you are a child of God, live like it. Live like it. Because your status has been changed, live in light of Jesus. He goes forward to look at, mix some metaphors with night and day. Um, verse 6, he says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, but those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Now, Paul, again, is doing the contrasting. He's saying those who sleep, and he's not talking about people who are dead now. He's saying there's darkness and sleep, and there's light and being awake. What he's trying to do is compare the two different worldviews that we live in. There's a worldview that lives with an, without an understanding of who God is, an understanding of who Jesus is that rejects it, and he's saying that's not what you should be in. That is completely at odds and at opposite of the worldview that you should live in. A worldview that at its center has the... Bre- the, 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 the Okay, I'm going to get this. At the, at the center of this, it has the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. So one worldview has no God. This worldview has Jesus at the center. And Paul says, that's what it means to be awake. That's what it means to be sober. To be sober means to be alert, to be aware, to live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back to redeem, to save, to restore. He is coming back to bring justice and wrath, but not for those who believe in Jesus. So that's what Paul is communicating. And he, and he closes this part in verse 8 when he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having putting on the breastplate of faith, love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation, the Christian triad. Paul says, here's how you will grow in your status. This is how you will grow in understanding that you are children of God. In essence, this is how you should act if you are in Christ Jesus. You will have faith in Jesus. That's one way you will grow. You will understand the love of Jesus that he has for you. That's another way you will grow. And you will have a sense of security. In verse 3, he talks about people who have no hope. And it says they will think they have peace and security. And the day of the Lord will bring wrath. Paul says there's a guarantee for those who are in Christ Jesus that you should have security that you should not be afraid of Jesus coming back because you have the hope of salvation, faith in Jesus Christ, and the love that is yours that you can never lose. And so Paul says that's how we should live. That should be an encouragement to the church that Jesus is coming. But here's the problem. Um, I got, got three things that I want us to walk away with. Two reasons is why we don't believe in that or why the return of Jesus Christ doesn't encourage us and one way why we should believe it. Um, the first thing is why we don't believe that when we hear the return of Christ, 
even if you try this whole Advent season, what I've been trying to do, even praying is, Lord, help me, help me desire you. Help me want your return. Because if I had to be honest, and you had to be honest, that we just don't really think about it or are at least aware of or desire Jesus coming back. I was at a funeral a couple weeks ago um, of a wife of a good friend of mine, and one of the women that got up to speak, she talked about how her husband had died, and the whole time she just rejoiced and rejoiced of longing and yearning for the day that Jesus would return. And I thought, gosh, I just don't have that. And if I had to be honest, it's because my life is pretty comfortable. I mean, there's some things that happen that I don't like, can't say words sometimes that I want to say, and there's, you know, days that my kids get on my nerves, never my wife, and and there's there's just, for the most part, I'm I'm, I'm just okay. I'm happy to be a Christian. I love Jesus, but really now it's kind of a good deal, and that's where we are. The first reason why it's hard for us to believe that is Jesus is not enough anymore, and I tag on anymore because if those of us, We've had seasons, we've had moments in our life where Jesus was it. We've had moments where we felt so near to the Lord, even subjectively, we felt that we would have sold everything, that we would have been like the man in the scriptures and said, this is the treasure that I found, take everything else. Take it away, because I don't care, because I have Jesus. For, for me, that was a, my first three or four years as being a Christian, I could care less. I get rid of all types of things in my life. Some of them I wish I still had back. But I got rid of all types of things, friends, people. It just didn't matter to me because I really love Jesus. But then what happens with most of us is we continue to live. We continue to grow. And then we want Jesus plus something else. We want Jesus plus a spouse. We want Jesus plus a family. Jesus plus a promotion. Jesus plus a better degree. Jesus plus something else. That's usually a good thing, but not the main thing. And just simple math here. For those of you who go to ASU. Simple math here. Jesus, hey, I went there too. Come on, we're all stupid. So there's a sense that we're there. <laughs> ah, praise the Lord. <laughs> Jesus plus nothing. See, I jacked it up. Jesus plus anything else equals what? Yeah, nothing, all right? Jesus plus anything else equals nothing because it clouds it. You, you, we put things at the same level as the one in whom we loved, the one in whom, who gave himself infinitely for us, and then we move on to something. And so the idea of Jesus coming back sometimes gets in the way of our plans. A, a, a simple thing, a stupid thing, but this is how we live. Is I remember being a senior in high school, and it was the night before, it was Thursday night before our Friday night state championship game. And I grew up in a church where we watched all types of left-behind movies and, and everything. And I just knew the rapture could come at any day. Any, I grew up in Southern California, so there's earthquakes. Anytime there was an earthquake, I got on my knees, Lord, I believe in you. And I just, just, just whatever it took, right? And I remember thinking, what if he came back tonight? I prayed, this is sad, but I prayed and said, God, if you're there, if you're going to come back tomorrow, can you come back on Saturday and so we can play in the state championship game because I really would want to play in the state championship game. And I guess in some weird way he answered that prayer, you could think, but, but sort of. There's a, there's, a, there's a sense that we're like that. If I could just live to see this, I want to do this before I die. What, what that ultimately communicates is Jesus really isn't enough. By your experience, by your own actions, he's really not who you say he is. I'm talking to you Christians. He's really not all that you say. You're not believing all that the Bible says about him. When you think about those moments and you think about those times, what it was like when he was. How, how not necessarily life was easy, 
but, it, but he was your treasure. Everything else is put in perspective. Having a spouse, um, being married and having kids, those are really good things. Those are godly things. But the main thing is Jesus. If you ever get to the point where you have Jesus plus something else, you'll, you will eventually chase that something else, and Jesus will just be a distant second at best. So that's why. Second coming of Jesus. It's not our timing. We don't, we don't want it now. Another way that, that, that I see that this doesn't bring us encouragement is not that Jesus isn't enough anymore, but that Jesus was never enough. There, there are some of you in this room, you've never thought of Jesus. And not that you hate him, not that you hate the ideal of God, but maybe you're just apathetic towards it. You came because a friend invited you, and like we always say, we're glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. But, but now that you're here, I just have to be honest with you because the scriptures are honest. When Paul starts to talk about, um, in chapter five, verses one through three, and he begins to talk about the wrath and the day of the Lord, those are realities. It will come like a thief in the night. It, it will come like labor pains of a woman. It will be sudden, and you won't even know it. Paul is talking to you. He's speaking to you because you don't have faith in Jesus, and wrath will come. And it's not that God makes some emotional decision and says that I'm going to send wrath on you because he's rejected you. It's the opposite. By your own minutes, by your own words, you reject him. You reject the love that he has for you. You reject the idea that he would send his son to forgive you of your sins. It's on you. It's completely in your court. It's not that we have some angry God who's mad at us and now he wants to just execute justice. In fact, we have a God who should execute justice upon all of us and yet in his infinite love and loving kindness, he sent his son Jesus to redeem a people. And so when we begin to talk about the second advent, we talk about Jesus coming back, you sit here and you go, ah, I don't care. I said, that's why I wouldn't bring encouragement to you. And, and I also want to say this too. When this passage begins to bring comfort and encouragement, it brings comfort to those who believe in Jesus. Not that Jesus doesn't love you. Hear me. It's not because Jesus doesn't love you. It's because you don't love Jesus. And I have to be honest with you. Pa Paul closes here with get, speaking to Christian and non-Christian. And what he begins to do here is he takes all of us, those of us who are on the camp as Christians who say that we love Jesus, yet our lives don't live like it, and those of us who are here who say, ah, I don't even know who Jesus is, but I don't believe who is, Paul speaks to both, and he says there's a goal here. There's a goal in why we should look to the second coming of Jesus. And he continues here in verse 9 in chapter 5. He says, for God has not destined us for wrath. Meaning, it's not God's desire. God does not say, you know what I want? I want to bring wrath upon people. That's not his desire. That's not his heart. He does it because people reject him because of their own sin. God's desire is not saying, I don't like you, I don't like you, and I don't like you, therefore I will do these things. In fact, it's the opposite. He says, I have not destined you for wrath, but to obtain salvation. That's the goal, to obtain salvation. Now, Paul puts a word in here that I think is very important for us to understand. He could have just said, God doesn't destined for wrath, but for salvation. But he puts something in the middle here, that word obtain. And the word obtain means to acquire or to know. That, that Paul's goal here, that God's goal here, is that you would know without a shadow of a doubt. That you would know that there's nothing you can do to earn God's grace and his favor, and there's nothing that you can do to lose it. That without a shadow of a doubt, that there's a security that comes in knowing Jesus. That's the goal, that you would have salvation freely in Jesus. Nothing you do, all that he's done. I can't offer it to you. No one in this room can offer it to you. Nothing else has a hope that God, only that God has. And it's a real hope. It's abiding hope. It's a true hope. So he pleads with the Christian to say, there's a way that Jesus can be enough. 
And he pleads with those of you who are not Christians, and he says, there's a way that Jesus could be enough. And the goal is that you would obtain salvation. And he talks about the agent is through Jesus Christ. Verse 10 is the means who died. For those of us who would believe in him, he died for us, whether we are awake or asleep, that we might live, live with him and live with him forever. I can't say this more clearly. Only in Christ Jesus, you were more loved and accepted than you ever dare hoped. Every single one of us, if we were being honest with ourselves, what we were looking for in the things of this world, what we were looking for in a spouse, what we were looking for in school, what we were looking for in work and occupation, what we were looking for, we're looking for probably two or three things, to be loved without a doubt, to be accepted, to be approved, to not to be reject, to rejected, and yet everything else that we place our faith in will do that. Our families will do it at some point, our boyfriends will do it, our girlfriends will do it, our husbands will do it, our jobs will do it. At some point, they will fail you or you will fail it. And what the Bible teaches us is that Jesus Christ is the only one who will never fail you. He's the only one who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when you fail him, he died on the cross for you. He forgives you, he loves you. There is no other hope, amen? Paul, Paul closes with this, verse 11. Therefore, because you can have faith in Jesus Christ, because you do have a secure hope and salvation, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Meaning the purpose of it all is when people are suffering when they have lost, point them to Jesus. How we will aspire to live in light of Jesus' coming, how we would desire to, to see Jesus and grow, that that would encourage us, is to point each other to Jesus. At the end of the day, what this church wants to be about is people who know and see that God the Father has given us his son Jesus and he's given us the spirit, which again, points to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it is not always easy by any means to, to preach truth. And I say that and not even in an arrogant way, Lord. I don't know truth on my own and neither does anybody in this room, but you have given us truth and your son Jesus, who said he is the truth, and he's also the way. And not the way to escape this world, not the way to escape suffering, not a way to even escape death. For you yourself, Lord, entered into this world to die. Lord, that's why we celebrate Christmas, because it was joy, because God had entered in. He'd entered into our mess, that you'd entered into our pain, that you'd entered into our suffering. You've entered in even to our, our tears, Lord, that as Jesus wept over his friend Lazarus, not just for Lazarus, but he weeps with us as we weep. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, God, that we would see you and cultivate a relationship with you, Lord, that is bigger than we've ever imagined, that you truly would be enough. And so, Lord, we repent that we look to things, Lord, good things in which you've given us to point to you, but we, Lord, we point to them. And so we ask that by your Spirit, you would lead us into repentance into your son, Jesus. And God, I pray, Lord, that for those who are here that are questioning the thought of salvation, that are questioning the idea of Christianity, that you would give them, Lord, the means of the Holy Spirit to see the empirical evidence and the data of the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Even more than that, Lord, that you would speak to the simple, and you would speak to the wise, and that you would satisfy them, Lord, with your love. God, this is only something that you can do. God, I pray that you would stir up in all of us a desire 
and a longing for your return. Not just to escape the bad things in this world, but to meet you and to know you, to see you and to live with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.